Uh, well, if you've been keeping up with the news lately, uh, well, over the past few months or weeks, then you will have in all likelihood heard of or you know, witnessed your own organization mandate vaccination or ask for some sort of vaccination passports. Uh, and that, of course, you know, has been making the rounds in the news lately, and rightly so. I mean, I think it's a very, very important issue for us to talk about. Um, and I, of course, have also been talking about the issue, and I've been thinking a lot about it ever since I, you know, I, I heard about it. Um, and that is precisely what I want to talk about today. And it has, of course, you know, attracted quite the opprobrium from the kind of voices that you would expect and you know, the, quite the celebration from the kind of voices that you would expect again. And so, I mean, it's, it, it's erupted and caused and instigated a very, very important conversation. One that I, of course, wish to extend um, here on the podcast today. And joining me to do that um, is Nick Hudson, who we've had on the podcast before. But for those who were not able to hear that first podcast, I'll just introduce him very briefly. Um, Nick is an actuary uh, by profession. And not by trade, I believe. Not by trade, no. All right, cool. Investor by trade. All right, cool. An investor, as he said. And I think more importantly for today's conversation, one of the co-founders of Panda, which if you have not heard about, then I don't know where you've been. You've probably been living under a rock over the past few months and over the past two years, I think it has yeah, been. Yeah, we now. started in uh, pretty much the first quarter of last year. Yeah, but how, but how have you been? I mean, after the conversation that we've had, I mean, of course, there have been a lot of developments. Um, how have you been taking that? I, I hear, incidentally, that Panda has a very effective vaccination mandatory program that other organizations, governmental and otherwise, uh, have been advised to um, heed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good joke. We, we, um, look, it's, it's been the best of times and the worst of times yeah. in many ways. Um, you know, people uh, routinely call us names and smear us and drag us through the mud. But all we, all we look at when that happens is that we're, we're over the target. Yeah. Yeah. And we continue to speak out against the whole raft of crackpot authoritarian measures that have been invoked without any success and at enormous cost in this whole crisis. And... I've met some amazing, amazing people. My life is enriched by the people who've come into Panda's universe. So like anybody, I've lost some friends. But uh, when I look at it and I look at how they're behaving, I don't feel too bad about it. Yeah, uh, You sort of go through a process of rejuvenation and, yeah, enrichment is the right word. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of South Africans can sort of res resonate with that. Um, but I just quickly want to touch on the issue or the distinction between, um, you know, the vaccine mandates and the vaccine passports. I mean, it is, in a sense, a distinction without a difference um, yes. because some, I've, I've heard some pretty convincing arguments that, you know, vaccine passports are, or will in the long term, have the effect of, you know, manda mandating vaccination. Um, and so, you know, people have been arguing that, you know, vaccine passports are just a manner of speaking for what is, practically speaking, uh, you, know, a, a you know, mandatory vaccination. Mm. Um, so what, what is your sense of the difference? And is there um, a distinction that is worthy of, you know, uh, attention? And, and, and yeah, what, what do you think about, you know, the, the, I, the mandates? I think that the, the two... Um, issues overlap so much that uh, a distinction is not really valuable. Um, you know, the, the, the basic notion is that there is uh, some way of measuring the theoretical risk that somebody poses to you based on their propensity to 
carry and transmit some particular pathogen. And <clears throat> there are multiple dimensions on which this could be assessed. It's not only with respect to vaccination status. I mean, there are all sorts of things which cause the population out there to be heterogeneous with respect to their propensity to transmit disease. I mean, you could look at age as the defining uh, variable. You could look at poverty. Poorer people with worse diets are more likely to be infected by disease. Or it could work the other way, based on exposure to pathogens giving them more robust immunity. Mm. You could look at obesity. Yeah? Fat people are more likely to uh, have high viral loads of practically any virus that's doing the rounds. So there are multiple dimensions that you could use to make this assessment on people that they are more dangerous than some other group of people. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the moment we go down that road, we are heading into very dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are moral arguments to be made for why we should all impose it upon ourselves to stay home when we're sick. I'm very clear on that in my own head. Um, and... Before COVID, I would never measure, never visit my elderly parents or parents-in-law if I had a raging flu going on. You know that is just part of normal moral behaviour. Um, but the moment you open the door to distinguishing uh, between one group of people and another based on some theoretical construct of risk, you are going into seriously dangerous territory. And that's already evident in this whole argument. There's, the, there's a very rabid kind of um, <coughs> uh, moral panic going on around the vaccine status, as if this is the only factor that determines the risk that somebody poses. Mm. And we already know that that's not the case. You know, somewhere between, call it 60 and 80% of our population have recovered from COVID. And statistically, they represent less risk to some random person out there than an, a non-recovered vaccinated person. You know, natural immunity from prior infection yeah. from COVID is, and it's, it's, it's not really disputable anymore. There's so much scientific evidence for what I'm about to say. Natural immunity is more durable, broader, and um, more comprehensive, longer lasting than vaccine-induced immunity. End of story. And we, it, it, it also actually has a pro-social aspect that the vaccine immunity does not have because of that breadth of immunity. We see already that the virus is mutating around the vaccines because the vaccines involve very narrow coverage. These vaccines that focus on, focus on the spike protein of the virus only give people immunity relating to that spike, which is a very tiny portion of the virus, about 6%. So we know that it's more uh, contribution made by a recovered person to the, um, the health of the community because those people are not putting evolutionary pressure on the virus, right? So already, when you try and separate the population into the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and, and regarding them as a kind of dichotomy, mm. you've made an intellectual blunder. Um, and that's just, the, that's just 
you know, the starting point, uh, how I would frame this, that we are going into bad territory. But uh, sitting at the base of all this is a very important construct, which is the construct of bodily integrity. Mm. And I think you give up on that con construct very reluctantly. Yeah, um, and, and uh, several points. So I think on the point that's freshest to my mind, um, the, the one that you just made now about bodily integrity, could it not at least in part be argued that on the principle of liberty, um, that there is a role for the government to play um, in protecting life, liberty, and of course, you know, property rights, um, and that part of the government's mandate or part of the government's responsibility is to act in such a way that my life is protected from your uh, irresponsibility. So, I mean, I've heard people argue that, you know, a, a mandatory vaccination is exactly that. It's the government's way of trying to protect the lives of others um, from, you know, irresponsible people. H how would you push back on that? Well, because I, it seems to me yeah. a pretty sound or pretty plausible argument, at least from a John Milton, um, yeah. you know, f sort of framework. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would push back on proportionality, first of all. I mean, and, and that is at the, the heart of all of the reaction in COVID, the lockdowns, you know, destroying people's livelihoods on the theoretical idea that locking down um, reduces the spread and thereby reduces death. That's been shown to be false. I think similarly, in the idea that imposing a vaccine produces some spectacular benefit for society is also false. These, you know, in, in the case of these vaccines, they don't prevent transmission. They have a very small temporary reduction of transmission at best. And so the number of people needed to be vaccinated to save just one life is a staggeringly large number. You know, it, it's r ridiculous. And we are sitting here putting one risk under the microscope. And look, take a look at our government. Look at all of the failures to protect life, liberty and property. And now tell me that what they're doing is rational. It's yeah. absurd yeah. in the extreme. We have taken a risk, and, and let's, let's talk about that risk. With 60 to 80% of the population recovered, and more than half of the balance being of an age and health status where the virus never represented uh, a material risk to them anyway, yeah. um, we, we, are, we have gone mad. We, this, even before you had this recovered population, the median person in our, popula in our population is somebody to whom the virus presented less than a 1 in 10,000 risk of death on infection. It's negligible. And that was one of the largest failings of public health communication in this whole episode, was a failure to understand, comprehend, and communicate the relative risk in this whole saga. We would have had less death if we had taken an approach of focus protection, letting the young, healthy majority of the population get on with their lives and focusing our resources much more cheaply on taking measures to protect the, the vulnerable during the brief period while everybody else went and picked up the virus and developed natural immunity. Yeah. This would have, without any doubt, re resulted in fewer deaths. And we can see that. It's evidenced in the countries that took more proportional, more moderate responses. Countries like Sweden and Finland, 
who in 2020 had negligible excess mortality, whereas countries like South Africa that went bananas have significant excess mortality. But I mean, if, if you say um, that you know, 70 or 80%, as Discovery said in one of their studies, um, of the population has caught and recovered from um, the, the virus and that they have developed some sort of natural immunity, surely then um, we would expect that there wouldn't be um, another wave of COVID because most of the population would have caught it and developed the kind of natural immunity that you say is stronger than protection from the virus. And it also seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that what you're saying is because the majority of the population has natural immunity, that taking the vaccine will be frivolous at best. Um, and, and if it is frivolous, surely then it makes no difference between whether they take it or not. Well, we haven't discussed the risk, the downside of taking it yet, and I don't think that is a frivolous matter. Mm. Um, as many as one in a thousand um, young men who uh, take a dose, just a dose of the vaccine, in, uh, suffer myocarditis or pericarditis, which are, is a potentially serious condition with long-term damage to the heart being done. There are rising concerns around the impact on fertility. And these concerns arise in part because the original contention of the manufacturers, which is that the vaccine contents would not distribute through the body outside of the deltoid muscle, which is the injection site, turned out to be completely false. And the vaccine product is known now to distribute all around the body. And that's of concern because it comes at the same time as we find distribution studies of the nanolipid particles, um, lipid nanoparticles, sorry. Um, what's, what's that? It's one of the constituents parts of these uh, mRNA vaccines. Turns out that they go to, they can be found in, found in quite significant particles all over the body, including in, in the ovaries, the testes, the endometrium. And um, the, the function of these, you know, the way these uh, vaccines function is they cause your cells to produce the spike protein. I've never understood why the vaccines all focused on the spike protein because that's the business end of the virus. It's like if there was any part of the virus that you didn't want your body to be producing in an attempt to evoke an immune response, it would be the spike protein. And so there's a kind of causal mechanism that uh, uh, is concerning because you're producing these particles that can then bind to the receptors in your cells, and what does that do? Um, there are theories as to how that would um, cause damage, and there are signs that those theories might be correct. Um, and we see menstrual irregularities cropping up and with, with alarming frequency. Um, and when you see all of those things, I have to say, come on, you know, just stop what you're doing. The, vac the benefit of the vaccine for the person getting it when it involves people of childbearing or younger age is vanishingly small. Uh, you know, the, the, the cost could be quite catastrophic and there are real concerns out there. So just stop and just remember what I said. The impact on transmission is small and temporary so that you would have to, to have one theoretical life saved. You've got to vaccinate an astonishing number of people, especially when you're vaccinating into a population that already exhibits a high degree of immunity. But I think I've drifted a little bit from your question, which is would we expect another wave? Um, 
I'm not sure that the upper bound of that 60 to 80 percent estimate really is in play. The, if you look at how Discovery did the calculation, it is rather simplistic and makes a lot of assumptions. Uh, um, how, how did they do that calculation? They, they, they seem to reference the, what they assume to be the, the infection fatality rate in South Africa, and they get a range based on that infection fatality rate. So they work backwards from the number of people who've died to the mm. number of people who they think have been infected. A more solid way of doing it is to actually try and measure zero prevalence, which is the, the, the on a randomized basis, you measure how many people are showing antibodies in their blood, and you do that for a representative sample of the population, and you extrapolate from there. And, and th that is done by medical authorities in South Africa, and they come out with slightly lower estimates, but even then, it's, it's still the majority, a safe majority yeah. of the population. What is also happening is that as you roll forward in time, um, you get new uh, people becoming vulnerable because they're aging or because you know, lockdown has caused them to uh, reduce the quality of their diets to a year and a half of ongoing fear and terror promoted by um, our public health authorities in the new world of um, public health by weaponized lying, um, is all the time producing people who are exposed or vulnerable in a way that they previously wouldn't have been. So the population of vulnerable people is being refreshed in the background. But what I think any uh, virologist or epidemiologist would expect is that at a point in time, this thing becomes an endemic disease like any other respiratory virus, and probably one of lighter consequence than, say, influenza or RSV, respiratory uh, syncytial virus, um, because of this fact that for most of the population, COVID presents as a minor cold, right? Um, and especially once you've got lots of people immune. And I, I, so I would expect that quite soon this becomes endemic, a background circulating virus of, of no particular consequence relative to other ones. So, yes... Um, if, if we, I believe if we just ended the measures, there'd be no visible working. Most of them are based on very false premises. And there's no, I believe there's no need at all to be going in the direction of these mandates and vaccine passports. The grounds for them, the logical grounds, the medical grounds, the epidemiological grounds is extremely, extremely shaky. And I've kind of been generous in describing it as shaky. Yeah, but um, would you object to uh, private individuals requesting, for instance, that you produce some sort of inoculation certificate to one of their functions? Um, w w would that be contestable to you? Because surely so, you I would certainly object. Um, whether they should be allowed to do that from a legal point of view is, is, yeah. is an entirely different question. You know, I would regard such people as having lost their minds. Um, you know, do they? Do you, do you screen people for weapons and they walk into your facility every time? Or do you um, do a psychological health check to, to check that they're not violent people? You know, that would be, those would be measures that make sense. Screening um, people on the basis that they may just be an asymptomatic carrier of a disease that's already gone through most of the population is an imbalanced approach to, to risk. And, and, and that's a really important point as well. The entire basis of fear which is that asymptomatic transmission as a driver of the epidemic is false. It was based on two very shaky papers that have both been 
thoroughly refuted. And not much primary research on this question has been done. I would go as far as to say that it is more likely the case that asymptomatic transmission is transmission of immunity more often than it is transmission of disease. So the whole basis that a healthy person is something to be feared and a, the deadly vector of a deadly virus is, is fundamentally contestable. So, yeah. but, but, but is that not a straw man of the argument, though? Um, because what you're assuming necessarily in that argument is that the person is healthy. The person may appear to be healthy, but may very well not be. Uh, that's the thing I'm attacking, is this, yeah. this idea of asymptomatic people as uh, deadly vectors of disease was flawed at the beginning based on incredibly flaky data. Now, I'll give you an idea. They were the, the first paper, the paper, they were... At the time when this thesis was launched, there were precisely two papers that were purporting to demonstrate asymptomatic transmission as a driver. The one paper involved one Chinese woman who was supposedly asymptomatic and infected six colleagues in Germany. Mm. That paper was published as one of the two papers that purported to demonstrate asymptomatic transmission. The only problem was that it was discovered after that paper was published, that she was being treated for flu-like symptoms. She wasn't actually asymptomatic. The second paper was a paper that emanated out of China. And you have to be very careful with anything that comes out of China because it's very propagandized and weaponized, as we saw with the falling man videos and all that kind of thing. We all know now that that's not how this virus works. None of us have seen people dropping dead in the street. didn't happen anywhere. But that was what they were presenting to the world. It was obviously fake videos uh, put out for propagandistic reasons. And that second paper emanating out of China was, is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, clearly flaky, clearly um, uh, unreliable. And what happened after that was a whole lot of subsequent papers were based on those two, making assumptions about the uh, propensity of asymptomatic infected people to transmit and that transmission to result in severe disease. Mm. And they were essentially models based on er erroneous assumptions from those first two papers. And there really hasn't been much more uh, work done. And when you look at the empirical data, um, we don't see that countries that have locked down, preventing contact between asymptomatic people, have lighter mortalities than countries that didn't. We don't see um, inception and termination events. That would be inception and termination of lockdown. We don't see such events having the kind of impact of the on, the on the mortality and ep epidemic curves that one would expect if that thesis was true. Yeah. So the whole thing needs to be challenged. Mm. And it's, it's kind of this pernicious idea that everyone is, everyone is guilty until proven healthy and you know, that involves having to take some jacked up PCR test which is an unreliable way of assessing infectiousness and infectedness in the first place. Yeah, but can it not be argued deductively that because of the spike in numbers that we've clearly seen in the data, um, that there must have been asymptomatic people that spread uh, um, the, the, the virus off to people just purely from um, you know, uh, inductive um, re reasoning. Um, so, so that's the first question that I wanted to ask based on what you said. The second is, is it not better, could it not know reasonably be argued that it is better to, um, r to to catch the virus having been inoculated against it than to not uh, have been inoculated against it and that it would be better for your sake and for those around you and for the sake of those around you 
to catch the virus having been vaccinated than to catch it having not been vaccinated? So the first point I would say, no, there's no, there's no inductive process by which you can infer that the epidemic spread was because of um, asymptomatic carriers simply because we see a spike. Yeah, um, I mean, not, not primarily, but can it not at least in part be argued that there must have been asymptomatic people that spread it? No. I mean, uh, the, the, you could make an argument for pouchy symptomatic people, people with mild mm. symptoms spreading. And I think that's been one of the failings of public health because public health communication, because this disease was presented as this deadly airborne Ebola that could kill anybody, which was false on a number of levels, people, when they got the slight runny nose or the slight headache or the slight cough, just dismissed it, didn't say, no, this can't possibly be COVID. And so they went out and about. The correct public health communication would have been, look, guys, for most people, this presents as a slight cold. And when you get those symptoms, you should stay away because that's when you're at your most uh, transmissible. You know, th there is a little window as you catch the virus and develop the disease, if you're one of the people who goes on to develop the disease. Most people don't. Um, there's a little window prior to the evidence of symptoms when you can be trans shedding enough virus to transmit it. Um, but it's very brief, and it can't be the driver of the the entire epidemic the more likely situation is that you are dealing with symptomatic people who are responsible for most of the spread and this just goes to basic reasoning you know you've got to be shedding virus to 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 spread the disease and inoculum size the dose size of that spread is important and the people who spread the most virus the people who shed the most virus are the people who are uh, symptomatic you know if there's a window of time uh, people with what high viral loads shed more and therefore will spread more. So in, in that sense, the notion of the super spreader is, is probably correct. You get people who are ill and shedding a lot of virus because their immune systems are not sufficient to deal with the infection. Um, and that's actually, we haven't mentioned this, one of the features here that is not being spoken about sufficiently is that the viruses have, the, the vaccines have negative efficacy immediately after the first and second dose. People are more likely to get COVID after that it actually increases their risk of getting COVID. Um, this is not understood. It was documented in the original trials. It's blatant, patently evident in the international data. There's some 90 countries where you can see very clearly as soon as they initiate mass vaccination, there's a, rapid, a massive surge in cases. And you can even see it in Israel with the third dose they go through this incredible surge of deaths and cases as they start their third dose, and that surge stops as the dosage, as the implementation slows down, as they saturate the population with the booster. So this is a well-observed fact now, and um, also one which I think is not being factored in. You know, when people talk about the vaccines being safe and effective, well, you know, really... Are you, only do, are you doing the statistical trick of only considering people to have been vaccinated 14 days after their second dose and ignoring all of the infections with the which the vaccination caused? Well, that's, that's cheating. That's fraud. So I, I think the efficacy of the vaccines is grossly overstated. It's initially negative, then it swings positive for a short period, and then it seems to disappear altogether. And that's why the, you know, the Israelis are going bananas now, going on to their fourth booster. <laughs> 
their fourth shot. Um, and the whole efficacy has been grossly overstated in quite, as I say, fraudulent ways. And the safety has been overstated. I mean, there, there is no vaccine in the history of medicine that has produced the number of, of adverse events that we are seeing in the US and Europe. And I know people say, well, oh, but that, 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 they could be falsely attributed, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you were happy to ignore that argument when we made it in the case of COVID, number one. Number two, no. When people are sampling into those adverse events at the moment and doing autopsies, they're finding that a high proportion are in fact clearly related to the vaccine and are unable to rule out a vaccine's role in the other portion. So th this is far and away the most dangerous vaccine that's been rolled out and not stopped in the, in the history of modern medicine. Yeah, and I think to the second question, while you touch on this, um, is, is it not better though um, for people to catch the virus having been inoculated? Your second question. Yeah. yeah. So this is a very difficult thing to assess because it, okay, so th let, let's distinguish between two settings. There's one question which is once you've had the virus, does the vaccine, a subsequent vaccine help you? No, it does not, okay? In fact, there's um, some concern that it results in destruction to the immune system which is not recovered, okay? So your, your immunity actually worsens. The other way around, you get the vaccine and then later go on to get the, the disease. There's an ambiguity there. If the, um, the virus that's infecting you is similar to the one which the vaccine mimics, then yes, that, that would, quite, would probably be expected to improve your immunity. So then you've taken a vaccine which, assuming you survive without any harm, the adverse effects of the vaccine has now boosted your immune system so that when you contract, when you get infected, your symptoms are less severe and your likelihood of death is lower. Okay. But if there is drift in the genetic makeup of the, the virus in between you getting the vaccine and becoming infected, there we have a number of quite scary concerns which have not been ruled out. And those go under the labels of um, ADE and OAS, ADE being antibody-dependent enhancement and OAS being original antigenic sin. And there are some signs that we ought to pay attention to those things, and there are very serious scientists out there who are raising the alarm about the propensity for this. Um, the other concern that I meant that's relevant here that I mentioned earlier is because of the narrow immune scope of these spike protein-based vaccines, it's possible that you will have evasion as a result of evolutionary pressure placed on the virus of the vaccinated narrow immunity, in, in which case it's not necessarily the case that the vaccine will be of any benefit to you at all, and it can actually be associated or complicate the other phenomena that I talked about, the OAS and the ADE. So there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty around this, and anybody who tells you they know for sure what the answer to that question is is wrong. Okay, They don't know for sure, I'll tell you that much. It's complicated. I don't come down in any of these camps other than to assert a principle of precaution. Yeah. Why take these risks? These are population-wide risks. 
why this rabid, psychotic drive yeah. to stick an injection in every single arm in the country, even the arms of children who, you, you know, children have such robust immunity to this disease that they should really be considered to be pre-vaccinated, that they, they, they should be deemed to have been vaccinated already. Yeah. And this is probably too for young, for young people up to, you know, quite a reasonable age, up to like maybe the age of 30, that the best, the best approach to this all would be to deem them to be vaccinated because the nature of immunity that they have is so strong. Their propensity to become transmitters is not reduced by vaccinating them. You yeah, know? Because that's the next question yeah. that I was going to ask. Yeah. I mean, could it not be argued that even the people who have relatively strong immune systems surely can still transmit um, this, this virus? And should we not be concerned about their propensity to transmit it to those who are vulnerable? Let's, let's, just, let's just unpack that a little bit because, again, it's not a simplistic yes or no answer. For a person who has... Um, a, a robust, a very robust in immune system, or a person who's recovered from the disease, they are incredibly unlikely to become transmitters. Okay, so let's let's look at the case of recovered people. What recovered people benefit from is something called resident memory T cells, and those are located in your mucosa, in your upper respiratory tract, and they function to prevent you from becoming infected at all if you're exposed to the virus, and if you haven't become infected, you can't become a transmitter. Mm. You need to be, the virus needs to be replicating in your system in order to make you a transmitter. So for recovered individuals, a, a, a significant proportion of them will have what's known as sterilizing immunity. They're unable to be infected or to transmit. This is not true for the vaccine. There is no causal mechanism uh, for widespread sterilizing immunity arising from vaccination because the injection goes into your shoulder. You don't set up the resident memory T cells that are required to produce sterilizing immunity because the entire respiratory tract mode of entry of the agent is bypassed. And that's why these vaccines are, as they are uh, technically referred to, leaky vaccines. They're one of the reasons why they're leaky don't prevent infection or transmission by the vaccinated person. So the case is pretty clear for recovered individuals. For children, it gets more complex because the reason for their immunity is different. It's not only related to exposure to similar beta coronaviruses and to the development of sterilizing mucosal immunity. It's also related to another part of the immune system called the innate immune system and the way that that operates differentially across age groups. But good innate immunity also um, reduces the likelihood of children being transmitters, and we see that in practice. For example, households that... The more, the more children you have in a household, the lower the probability is that the parents of that household will in experience severe disease. Mm. And that tells you something. So it tells you probably, there's a good theory for what's going on there, children are very modest shedders of virus. They introduce into the environment that they're in when they're infected uh, such, a, such small doses that those doses act mainly as natural vaccines. Light exposures to a pathogen easily dealt with by most people's immune systems, setting up the immune memory that that person can then benefit from when they're exposed to a significant dose. So as you can see from this kind of discussion that we're having here, the, the situation is not simple. Yeah. 
and people present it as simple. Get yeah. the vaccine and you protect it and you protect everybody else. No, the case, the case is not that strong. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think an argument could be made to the contrary. Um, no, not so much for the argument that you're making now, because I think it's a sound one. Um, but for the principle um, that you know, the, the 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 you know the the data that's out there is simple to make conclusions off of. So I mean, uh, I know a lot of my libertarian-leaning friends will argue that people need to be left to their own devices to make their own medical assessments. Yes. And although I think that holds in most cases, I don't think it quite holds in this case because of the saturation and the schisms that you spoke about earlier that have developed around COVID and the politicization of it. So, I mean, as you quite rightly mentioned, it is a very, very complex issue. And I don't think that people, an illiterate population mainly, can be left to its own devices to make its own very, very complex medical decisions. Um, and, and, and I think what, comp what compounds this inequity is the fact that you know technology is enabling people to transmit news from, you know, so basically people can conjure up their own stories and post them um, you know, around for people to see. And I think that's um, a, a complication that has you know, rarely ever been spoken about. The fact that it's the ubiquitousness of technology that's making it very, very difficult for people to make their own decisions because there's new information coming in left, right, and center. And people who people or members of the community look up to will say one thing, and obviously the members of the community will be inclined to believe that person, but he may very well have gotten his... Um, you know, information from a very, very sketchy source. So I think it, it is a very difficult and a very, very complex issue. And I think it's because it is difficult and complex that people cannot be left to their own devices to make their own medical decisions. It just seems to me a bit unfair to expect of a population as illiterate as ours um, to, to, to be making such complex medical decisions because, of course, the, making, the, the consequence of making the wrong decision can be fatal. Look, a couple of points there. The first one is that the biggest source of misinformation in this entire epidemic has been the public health authorities. Yeah. The reason they're uh, transmitting misinformation is because they're all captured by big pharma. The vaccine stakeholders and, and big pharmaceutical companies have been funding all of our institutions of public health and our medical faculties for, for a long time. And scientists who disagree with the government narrative or the big pharma narrative are silenced, cancelled. So what we've had, and it's, it's, it's ubiquitous and it's thoroughgoing because every element of this narrative has been false. We've spoken about asymptomatic transmission, this idea that the virus was new. You know, I'm going back to our May podcast, but so I'll just go through these things very quickly. This thing is not new in any in meaningful sense of the word. It's not deadly for the vast majority of the population. Lockdowns have not been shown to be effective. Cloth mask mandates have not been shown to be effective. Um, this whole scare around we're all equally at risk now or the scare around long COVID, these have all been turn, turned out to be grossly exaggerated and, and knowingly so at the time, in the light of the evidence available at the time. So the entire messaging around this pandemic from the public health officials, officials has been largely made up of exaggeration and misinterpretation and deliberate misrepresentation. Yeah. So that's causing confusion. I don't take this kind of paternalistic view. When I get into an Uber and sit down chatting to the driver, that guy has a clearer picture 
of what's going on than what's coming out of the mouths of the public health officials. He knows he's been lied to. It's the elites in society who are exposed to social media and who have swallowed the government narrative and who are scared to speak out because they fear ostracization and smearing in their populations who are the most misled and the most likely to have been confused in this whole process. I believe that the man in the street has a much clearer picture than those elites who are basically reduced to the status of juvenile bedwetters yeah, but, but, by but not a constant fear yeah, narrative. Yeah, so sorry for that. Uh, but not everybody is going to get to hear from the man on the street. Yes. And, and that, I think, is the problem. So the solution to that is to stop this business of censorship and trying to do the unison narrative, which is based, as I say, on mainly false premises. This has been shocking to me, the extent to which media control has been exerted and control of these censorship organizations and fact checkers, all it all you know all roads lead to lo to Rome. It goes back to the people who are trying to impose not just the pharmaceuticals upon us, but also an entirely new vision for our future. There's an agenda behind all of this, and it's been weaponized and leveraged across our media and censorship organizations, and the dissenting voices are absent from the public square. One of the things I've noticed with much disgust is that these characters like Glenda Gray and Shabir Mahdi and uh, Professor Karim are completely unwilling to take questions from anybody who is at all hostile or anybody who is at all going to ask difficult questions. They avoid this like the plague. There is never an opportunity given to question these people to raise the points that I've been raising. And the reason for that is they know that they're wrong. Debate is fatal to these people. And that's the shocker here. If public health was doing what it used to do, which was to be a voice of calm and to present accurate information and to change its viewpoint as evidence emerges, then we wouldn't be in this situation. But it's not like that. There's there's a almost cultish commitment to injecting everything that moves. And if you don't adhere to that, you're a horrible person and an anti-vaxxer and you're selfish and you all of the... That is the level to which the debate has sunk, if you can even call that a debate. There's no, there's no debate happening. I was asked by the vice chancellor of UCT to join a panel at, at UCT to, when they were debating the ins and outs of vaccine mandates and the broader COVID response. I was uninvited because one of the other speakers said that they refused to share a platform with me. Gosh. And that is a shocker. And that speaker was a professor. So, you know, these people are behaving like juvenile delinquents. Mm. They are consistently failing to disclose their conflicts of interest. And as a result, they're projecting a false narrative. The public is misinformed. And we do not have the mechanisms of error correction that we would have had in a free society with a free press. The press is not free anymore. Yeah, but, but, but what constitutes as the press now? Because, uh, you know, it seems to me that social media, to many people, is what the press is. But social media is not free. There is un unrelenting mm. censorship going yeah. on in social media. We've had scientists suspended from Twitter and other platforms simply for posting peer-reviewed articles without comment. Mm -hmm. That is shocking. And the reason they're being suspended is because the findings of the peer-reviewed articles contradict some element of the narrative. 
This nonsense that we are following the science couldn't be further from the truth. We're following a narrative, and that narrative reflects a political agenda. Yeah, yeah, and, and that I think is, is is the most problematic thing about it. And I, I mean, I apologize. I'm not as well versed in the facts of this matter as perhaps I should be. But that is precisely why. And you know, I, I like the fact that you bring the fact that or you bring up the fact that people are reluctant to debate because we did try. Um, to get an, a guest to debate you on the platform, and they, of course, virulently turned it down. Um, and, of course, I have my suspicions why. It could very well be that they don't want to engage with you because um, they think that what you're projecting at Panda is uh, you know, deplorable and they don't want to associate with such. But it also could be that they're using that um, as a mask to you know, not sort of contend with their own arguments. And it seems to me that the... Um, that the uh, the latter uh, is a guise for the former, or is it the other way around? Well, I mean, we had a very interesting one where you know a debate took place between Panda and Discovery by way of a series of letters, and we put in to them that we said to them, we showed to them, look, you've got misinformation on your website. You are lying about the vaccines, and they made one edit to the website addressing one point, which is you know just a blatant falsehood was removed. But they said they were not going to make any other changes and that they felt that they had a sort of a moral basis for doing this. In other words, they weren't even contending with any of the issues we raised. And that's what it comes down to. Yes, there's this kind of uh, moral panic leading to a false morality. Remember, I, you know, morality is a, is a, is, should be rooted in realism, right? We can, we, we can use moral reason because there is a correspondence between the truth and morality, um, reality, yes. So the, no, the truth and morality. Mm. You know, um, and what these guys are doing is saying, "Well, we're not going to, we're not going to address the substance of your arguments and the science that you cite." What do you assume, What do you conclude from that? Because they can't. And so we're going to make this argument that this is a moral imperative. And I would say, that is, gotcha time. We've gotcha. When that is the level to which your argument has sunk, you're over. And that is exactly what's, what you experienced has been recounted to me by numerous journalists, all of them trying to set up. They say, listen, go, come and have a discussion with Nick Hudson. Here are his three other debates. He's very polite. He raises good points. This is a civil process. This is what mature people do. Yeah. But these bedwetting, moralizing fools turn around and get all high and mighty about, no, no, you guys are doing harm to public health, you guys are deplorable, nonsense. Come and bring me your facts and reason. Grow up. Yeah. And I mean, if people are listening to that, then you know, they can sort of take that charge up. Um, and another thing that I wanted to uh, touch on is, um, I mean, again, a lot of my, and I hang around a lot of, uh, you know, liberal-minded, classically liberal-minded people, and they make the case that um, people are sort of heeding to the calls of uh, big pharma and big governments. I mean, you briefly touched on it now, um, and that if you accept or if you think that the, that the vaccines are effective, that you must in some way be, uh, you know, a slave to big government or big pharma or, you know, just believing them uh, without due skepticism. Um, again, I mean, it's a claim that's been made by like-minded individuals, but it's one that I think needs to be refuted. Um, because it, it isn't so much that people are 
you know, just in uncontested agreement with big pharma and big government. It's because people trust the scientific method of inquiry, in, 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 in a sense. Um, and, and that, I think, is where the problem is. It's because the scientific method of inquiry that we have very good reason to trust is being polluted, and people are Correct. being reluctant to debate people who have contrarian views. And as a natural contrarian myself, I find that quite deplorable. Very well put, very well put, yes. The problem is not that anything that comes out of farmer's mouth is wrong. That's not the problem. The problem is that you should not only take your advice from people who are in the pocket of vaccine stakeholders. And you know, it's not just when it comes to the scientists. We have studied and publicized the extent to which media organizations such as the Daily Maverick, Becca Cisa, and Groundup are funded by vaccine stakeholders and are clearly never departing from the narrative of those vaccine stakeholders. And they make, they make claims that they have independent uh, editorial oversight and that they would never be contaminated by their funding. But that's patent nonsense because then they wouldn't all be in unison agreement, mm. on, uh, particularly on such nuanced and complicated issues. And they wouldn't only be presenting one side of the argument and they wouldn't be refusing right of response after they've conducted a smear article against Panda. Mm. You know, so it is, yeah, thank you for your nice claim. I don't believe it, and this doesn't pass the smell test in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, so what would you say to people like myself who would say, or who are, you know, relatively respectful of authority, but also want to maintain a healthy dose of skepticism? Because obviously, one can conceive of how both extremes yeah. can be dangerous. So we want to. So I will, for instance, when I go, when I'm going to a shop, have my mask on, not so much because I necessarily believe that they do what they're, or what we're told that they do, but because I just want to do what I want to do, get out as quickly as I can and take the mask off when, you know, as soon as I can. But there are some people I've heard who are rebels in that regard, who will go into the shop without the mask and only insist on putting it on only when they, that they have been asked to put it on. And that, I mean, I just think well, for most South Africans is, is, is just not something that... Um, so so what, we, what we know about the masks is that cloth masks do not work. Not, there's no evidence in the epidemiological data and the, the, these little experiments that have been performed in laboratory settings to try and demonstrate masks are effective because they catch some you know, tiny proportion of the largest droplets that come out of your mouth. It's nonsense. It's a bad experimental construct. You know, the, the, the European CDC did a review of mask studies and they found that uh, 67% of them were of... Sorry, all but one were of low evidentiary value and 67% of them were exhibiting serious signs of bias. In other words, the researchers had decided what answer they wanted before they conducted the experiments and interpreted the results. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's the point, isn't it? That it, it, it's one thing to talk about the efficacy of the mask mandates, and it's another to pragmatically um, either wear a mask or not. And it okay. seems to me that most South Africans just want to get on with their lives. Whether or not this, these masks work... Or, you know, is an entirely yeah. separate point. Let me tell you why they can't. Why, what, what we have also discovered through freedom of information uh, requests and leaks from the behavioral science units of a number of governments is that they knew very well that cloth masks did not have any role in preventing a viral epidemic, but that they wanted to see mandates imposed because they constituted a reminder of the presence of a deadly virus. In other words, they were exerting this measure to project fear 
And we know that that was their tactic, was to amplify fear. They kept on saying things like there is insufficient level of perceived threat. We need to make people more afraid. So nothing will normalize as long as everybody's walking around wearing the silly cloth mask. And you are aiding and abetting a government and public health officials who have actually willfully harmed the population by taking it upon themselves to drive fear into heart, into the hearts of the Muppets out there as they see them. They do not have a respectful perspective about the man in the street. They have a disparaging, condescending approach. That is always the case when somebody is trying to scare you, and that is what they have been doing. It is ethically and morally despicable, and all of them should be ashamed, and all of us should be seeing them for what they are, conflicted, corrupt scientists, taking up an immoral approach to managing an epidemic. Jeez. Um, gosh, I, I, I don't know what to say in response to that, but, um, but what's the alternative like? So say we protest these, um, uh, the, 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 these mask mandates and we walk around without masks. What, what, what are we saying to those people who do not have the kind of access to information that you do, uh, people who are, who are anti-vax, people who think that there's some chip in the, in, in the vaccines? Because there is a growing schism, as I mentioned earlier, yes. um, and people th- there is a very distinct and very large and influential group of people who are just saying no to the vaccine, not so much for the you know reasons that you lay out that are based in science and fact, but who are just saying personally, you know, they just don't want to take it because they believe that it has some, you know, draconian uh, chip in it. Um, yeah. So h- how then do we stop that? Because clearly there's a danger on both ends, and what? one of the big dangers is people who need to take the vaccine protesting it for reasons that are unscientific and unrealistic. Philosophy, you you stop the draconian pressure. People respond to this kind of forceful authoritarian approach by kicking back, and they will kick back, grabbing at the closest reason at hand, whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. So the chips, as you as you suggest, yes, that would be you know, some minority of people out there who have grabbed that reason. But are they really responding because of the chip? Would they have come up with that reason if everybody had said to them in a calm and relaxed fashion, look, this is what the vaccine does. If you haven't had COVID, this might be something you should consider. We recommend it for the following age groups. And for the rest, it's up to you. You know, We don't really know whether the risk exceeds the benefit or vice versa. If they'd taken that approach, you would have fewer of these extreme voices on the other side. When you take this authoritarian, coercive kind of approach, you polarize people and you drive them to these extremes of irrationality. Yeah, I, I'm not too sure about that. Hey? I mean, I can certainly see that in one outcome, but I think another outcome that has been, you know, or that has not gotten the significant airtime that I think it deserves um, are all these underlying ideas that this, um, you know, COVID hes- or vaccine hesitancy finds legal tender, upon which it finds, not, not legal tender, um, uh, not you mean. fertile tender. Yeah. Um, could, could it not at least in part be incumbent upon us to address those underlying ideas upon which uh, a lot of this detrimental public health, um, uh, you know, impe- or these impediments find tender on? We, well, let, let's, let me turn it around. Can we see any logic in the fear that such people have? Yes. And I say, of course you can. 
for a year and a half, we have watched as governments all around the world, with very few exceptions, have enthusiastically pursued draconian authoritarian policies that are at odds with all prior pandemic respiratory virus guidelines that have manifestly caused immense harm. They have had a power rush. Mm -hmm. It is the nature of governments to try to increase power over their populations. And under those circumstances, I believe it's deeply foolish to believe that the vaccine passports won't become monsters of their own, that over the course of time, all sorts of features will be added to them that increase this power directed against the citizenry of the countries that invoke them. And you can see this already emerging in China, and you can see the conceptual framework emerging all over the world as we begin to confront ideas like carbon budgeting and carbon lockdowns. The idea that your passport will be used to control and nudge all sorts of elements of behavior, not just behavior related to the narrow confines of COVID. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's irrational to fear those things. Authoritarianism is something to fear much more than this virus. And so, yes, will there be a few fruitcakes? Is, is there a need to you know, impose upon those people? No. I think freedom is much more important than, you know, you deal with, we, we have always had the crazies in society who believe a, a, a lot of uh, weird things about aliens and about whatever, <laughs> flat earth, whatever. They're always those people. But the cost of obliterating such views is that you also take out correct views. Uh, the cost is Chuck that the you destroy the, the means of error correction. Yeah. When, when the government and the public health people are saying things that are actually as crazy as those loons on the other, other side of the, the spectrum, you know, the, the preservation of the means of error correction becomes more and more important. Yeah, and, and, and I think another thing that people sort of overlook and that I think they need to take, you know, to, to, to think a lot more seriously about is just how dangerous the slippery slope of vaccine uh, passports are. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've heard people make the argument that, I mean, why are you now suddenly protesting COVID passports when you didn't protest, say, yellow fever passports, um, that you don't protest uh, mandatory uh, rules against people driving uh, on the road intoxicated why are you suddenly objecting to this and so if we heed to this one they will something else will come up in the future and they will say oh but you didn't object to yellow fever and covid etc 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 why are you suddenly objecting to this and it becomes this you know um, sort of rabbit hole um, that has no end to it and has no backstop to it so is covid the the event um, that should be the kind of backstop that we would expect from a, a liberal and open society. So I, I would buy something of that reductio ad absurdum argument if I saw strong signs that the people who were proposing um, vac immunity passports were doing reasonable things like taking into account prior infection and recovery. But I don't see that. These people are not reasonable. These people are not being proportionate. This has been from the beginning and it still is a reaction that is entirely disproportionate and not rooted in sound logic, whether it's epidemiological or medical logic we're speaking about. So I kind of, 
I don't I don't buy that. The the rabid zealotry, the crack pottery of this whole jab every arm is evident. It's right there. It's palpable. These people are not being logical and reasonable. Mm. So you fight. Yes, of course, we're happy with drunk driving rules. This is something, you know, that uh, that we as a society get our heads around that we want to come down hard on people who drive a potentially deadly weapon while intoxicated. That's fine. I get that. But no, forcing me, who's recovered from COVID, to have an injection that entails potential adverse events when there's no benefit to me or society, no. Sorry. Yeah. And, 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 and gosh, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, I wish I was uh, more acquainted with the facts because I think there is a lot to be said about that. Um, but, 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 I mean, I think just briefly... How do we tiptoe around this uh, fine line that seems to exist between um, either respecting authority and being skeptical of it? Because I think w we need a fine balance because there, there are obviously instances where authority must be respected, uh, as in the case of you know drunk driving rules, etc. But there's clearly also cases where authority must not be accepted and it must be made evident that it is not being accepted. T so how do we yeah. find that balance? Tuli Manansela puts it very well not the only one, that authorities are expected when the rules are rational and reasonable and when the rules are unsound and ridiculous and that craziness is there on parade for everybody to see, they cease to be respected and that is correct mm -hmm. and people become skeptical. This is not a binary thing that we, you know, we don't, we don't regard any authority as infallible. That, that, that is a basic feature of, of modern epistemology. We, we know that no authority is infallible. And so in a normal democratic functioning society, in a functioning liberal society, what you have is a robust fourth estate and a robust freedom of expression that allows the citizenry to contend all of the time with the rationality or irrationality of policy and to debate and air that discussion. And that is what has been killed as one of the many elements of the draconian response to COVID. We have killed the ability for mature, seasoned, reasoned debate about the validity of policy and laws to happen at all. But, but, but is that so much a function of COVID or as a result of the politics that has developed around it? It's interesting, you know, there is an element to which this response to COVID is emergent from the broader zeitgeist. Um, I think that's a very valid point and one thoroughly worth exploring. I, I get asked the question all the time, Nick, is this, this overreaction, this crazy reaction, is it a manifestation of a cock-up, a conspiracy, or an emergent event? And I'm answer to that is yes. It's all three. <laughs> uh, there have definitely been mess-ups. And there have definitely been elements of conspiracy and planning. It's, there's lots of evidence for that. And there's definitely elements of emergence. We had the evolution over the last decades of this very pernicious safety culture and cancel culture. This idea that words can be violence, that they have the weight of force. It's very interesting because those very same people uh, who, who contend such things are also the ones who turn around and say that vaccine mandate doesn't constitute force. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a kind of derangement in in the discourse that has grabbed hold of our institutions. I mean, how long have we had to contend with the nonsense of critical theory and of postmodernism in our university, you know, mm. in, in the academy? Um, there was, I think, a fertile ground enabled where the, the cognitive abilities had been kind of um, severely injured by the currency of such ideas, which then set up a receptiveness in the population to this kind of hegemonic approach to public health, uh, this, this reaction when they hear of somebody with an opposing view, instead of contending with the opposing view, to shout it down, to smear it, to silence it, to refuse to debate, to refuse to engage, that all comes from that culture, what's at least facilitated by that culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think you raise a very good point. Um, it's not just in COVID. It, uh, the, we, the, we'll put it this way, the, the, the COVID crisis arose partly because the society had degenerated. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And I think just to activate your business brain a little bit uh, and move away from the epidemiological side of the discussion, I wanted to get your take on the dichotomy upon which a lot of these measures are predicated, which is the lives versus economy or profit. Or Julius Malema said, we need to protect lives um, even at the cost of profit, um, what was the argument that he made? And I, I mean, I wrote an article a few weeks back um, that is published on our website for those who want to see it. Just, I mean, I, I, I think that's a ridiculous dichotomy. I think it's very, very stupid um, to say that the economy or to argue in some way that the economy does not act as some sort of mediator for life. And, and I think Russell Lamberti put it very well. He said, um, the economy is one of our most important life support machines and to turn it on and off at will as some sort of button or lever from the top um, is, is, is to turn off the most important life support machine, which of yes. course has more you know, fatal consequences all of its own. It's so almost only worth conceiving as a life support system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is the life support system. You know, that's what it does. And it, you know, I, I think an important argument that needs to be made is that it's, it's precisely that personal ability to evaluate one's own risk-reward preferences that is valuable to preserve. We all expose ourselves to countless risks on a daily basis, and we decide that those risks are worth being exposed to because life can be lived in its full richness. So you may decide that the way to live life is to lock down in your apartment and sanitize everything you know, s- s- uh, um, neurotically at all times because the, the ultimate value in life is freedom from viruses. I may decide that that the ultimate value in life is getting out and about and engaging with people and creating and um, building and solving problems and generating new knowledge and that I can only do that if I'm prepared to face a number of risks included in which is exposure to pathogens. And I should be free to make that decision. And we should all be free to make that decision. And what's been lost is that government has decided in favour of the former... <laughs> perspective on life over the latter for all of us and that's wrong yeah and i think you also made a brilliant argument there was um a conversation that i had listened to i think it was mike green i can't quite remember who it was um but but you said that the dichotomy is so foolish 
because what 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 it fails to recognize in its um, you know Marxist substrate that is ensconced within it is that the economy is you know w- 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 what makes life in a sense possible. Yeah. So it isn't lives versus right. an economy. Yeah. It's lives versus an economy that mediates lives and therefore lives versus lives. Quite quite right. And that was the point we came out with our in our original article that lead every, led everybody to to um, lose their minds and go bananas, starting to call us all sorts of names, which they've never stopped doing. Yeah. Even, yeah. Though <laughs> even though we've kind of... Like, it's very interesting. Our initial critics, in, in many cases, have actually now fully acknowledged all the points that we raised, but continued calling us names. Mm. It's funny. It's, it's, it's strange. Yeah, yeah but I mean, oh, we've spoken for over an hour now, I see. Um, but is there a, a final thought that you would like to leave with our, or with our listeners? Yes. I, I, I think there two final thoughts I'd like to leave. The one is that we are all in danger of boiling frog syndrome. What public health communication has done is continually move the goalposts on us by degree after degree. First it was two weeks to flatten the curve, then it was you know, another two weeks to save the hospital system, then it was permanent lockdown to prevent the spread or to slow the spread, and then it was... Um, a mask mandate and then it was you know so that these things have just been laid in one at a time and we need to remember what we've lost how far we've been pushed how irrational each of those steps was in hindsight and that leads me to my second point the ethical responsibility here is to find your courage having been scared having been psychosed, what we're dealing with here is a mass psychosis, is a moral failing. But it's a forgivable one. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's what features of character and virtue you possess that enable you to overcome fear. And everybody needs to find that courage. And we all need to stand up to this. This is not going to stop if you believe that rushing out and getting your vaccine is going to bring this all to an end, you are sorely misguided. We can see already all over the world how this is not the case. Countries with very high rates of vaccination still sit with massive case burdens, still sit with the imposition of all sorts of restrictions on freedoms. This is not coming to an end because of that political agenda that I mentioned. And people need to wake up to that. It's not about a virus. It never was. Gosh. Yeah, Nick, it's been, as always, and as people would have expected, a very, very enjoyable, thoroughly entertaining and thoroughly an insightful conversation. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, I've thoroughly learned a lot. Uh, I've learned a lot, a great deal from this conversation. And I mean, I really hope that the listeners will too. And I think just to note for the listeners, we are still a non-profitable organization and can only continue to exist with your support. Uh, so if you enjoyed today's conversation and wish to hear more, please head on over to our website at nmonline.co.za to our support option uh, and support us over there. You can also, while you're at it, check out our other content in the form of articles and you can support that if you like it as well. Um, that's nmonline.co.za. Um, the support option if you're interested in supporting us. Nick, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming to Stellenbosch. Thank you, Pilasani. It's really an absolute pleasure always to talk with you. And um, I wish all the best to your listeners as we struggle through this incredible crisis and try to restore some order and sanity to the universe. All the best to all of you.